This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is the New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Dale, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from the New Yorker, dated January 15th, 2024. And now I'll begin with the talk of the town. Comment. The big vote. Democracy, according to many observers, is now in the hands of a small band of voters in a half dozen swing states whose feelings about Donald Trump will determine whether it endures or falls. From that perspective, all the other voting across the country this year, beginning with the Iowa caucuses next week, is merely a grueling prelude to the tense wait on November 5th for results from Maricopa County and the Philadelphia suburbs. Much does depend on those voters, but democracy's struggles will play out on a far vaster field. Thanks to an alignment of calendars, 2024 will set a record for the greatest number of people living in countries that are holding nationwide elections, more than 4 billion or just over half of humanity. Even more depends on them. This year is about voting in all its hazardous glory. There are different ways of counting, but The Economist has tallied 76 countries where the whole eligible population has the chance to vote, even if, as in Brazil, it's only for local offices. That election in October should serve as a midterm assessment of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. The countries involved, from Algeria to Iceland, Indonesia, and Venezuela, are startlingly varied, including in their commitment to actual democracy. The Economist rated 43 of the elections as free and fair, with flaws even in the freest hours among them. One of the Economist's tests is whether an election has the capacity to bring about real change in terms of policy and who is in power. Put another way, the stability of democracies depends on the capacity of elections to be destabilizing. An election that doesn't involve some risk to someone is hardly any good. Those risks should be about outcomes and not, of course, about the dangers of voting or of running in the first place. Bangladesh got the election year started on January 7th after a bitter campaign in which the opposition complained of politicized arrests and called for a boycott of the vote. But democracy is, in a number of respects, in an even more perilous state in Russia, where Vladimir Putin will almost certainly be re-anointed in an election in March. The man who might have been his most potent challenger, Alexei Navalny, is currently an inmate at a penal colony in Karp in western Siberia. Still, the turnout of Russian voters and the mood on the street will reveal something about Putin's hold on power. Iran, where elections are contested among a very limited spectrum of candidates, will face a parallel test that same month following a year of mass protests. 
Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that he doesn't intend for an election scheduled for March to take place because, given the war, it would be absolutely irresponsible to throw the topic of elections into society in a lighthearted and playful way. That choice may be comprehensible, yet it still feels like a loss and possibly a tragedy. The single largest election this year, spanning April and May, will be for India's Lok Sabha, the lower house of parliament whose 543 members represent 1.4 billion people. The sprawling campaign will determine whether Narendra Modi remains prime minister. It would be a shock if he didn't and if his Bharatiya Janata Party will be forced to form a coalition. Possible. This election will closely follow one in Pakistan, which has been shaped by the criminal conviction and imprisonment of the opposition leader, former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Pakistan may also offer a harbinger of the rise of artificial intelligence in elections. Khan, who has been blocked from making campaign and broadcast appearances, released a video with AI-generated audio of himself giving a speech. The second largest election will be for the Parliament of a polity that is still in many ways being formed, the European Union. That election will be held in June across 27 countries. Members of the European Parliament caucus, not by country, but by transnational meta-party, Both France's Renaissance and Germany's Free Democrats are part of the Renew Europe group, for example. The election will help to set Europe's priorities, notably with regard to Ukraine. It will also be a barometer of the political moods of European nations, many of which are regarded as restless. Right-wing populists won a surprise victory in the Netherlands last year. In the United Kingdom, which left the EU, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has until January 2025 to call new elections. In North America, Mexico will choose a successor to President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in June. The leading candidates are two women, Claudia Scheinbaum and Jochil Galvez. Not counting the EU's joint poll, however, the continent with the most elections in 2024 is Africa, 18 by the economist's tally, though some have yet to be scheduled. One of the more closely watched will be in South Africa, where the African National Congress has a significant chance of losing power for the first time in 30 years, largely because voters view its leaders as corrupt. In South Sudan, where an election that was originally scheduled for 2015 is supposed to take place in December, the question is whether people will get to vote for anybody at all. Meanwhile, an unusual number of Chinese observation balloons have been spotted over Taiwan, which is in the midst of a three-way race for a new president to be decided on January 13th. In case anyone missed the message, one Chinese official said, according to Reuters, Reuters, that people in what he called the Taiwan region ought to make a correct choice and suggested that the wrong choice could lead to war. Lai Chengti of Taiwan's governing Democratic Progressive Party is seen as less conciliatory toward China than Hu Yui of the Kumatang. The polls are very close. The obvious question is, of these dozens of elections, which is the most important? We might be inclined to say that ours is because we are the United States and because of all that Trump might do. 
but we don't know what crises and triumphs will result from elections elsewhere or what going to the polls might mean for another nation's rise, even as we contemplate where our country is in the arc of its world's significance. We don't know what the effect will be, demoralizing, unsettling, or inspiring, of month after month of election news. Most of all, in a good many places, we don't know who is going to win. And that article was written by Amy Davidson Sorkin. Our next article... Letter from Texas, The Life of the Mother, A High-Risk Pregnancy in a Climate of Fear About Abortion, and this article was written by Stefania Taladrid. Legal Name of Deceased, Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick, Date of Death, Actual or Presumed, July 10, 2022, Marital Status at the Time of Death, Married, If Death Occurred in a Hospital, ER slash outpatient, if female, pregnant at time of death, location, city, town, and state, Luling, Texas, manner of death, pending investigation. Yennever Alvarez arrived in central Texas from San Luis Potosi, Mexico in 1998. At three, she was just old enough to have a sense of a world left behind, the fire that warmed the house in the evening. The meat hung to dry outside the door, and La Bisabuela, her adored great-grandmother, who had died shortly before Yenny and her mom went north. In Luling, Yenny, her parents, aunts, and grandmother settled into a cramped house with a tin roof that was down the street from her great-uncles, the first members of the family to discover the town's decent jobs in the oil fields. Black gold had been gushing there since the 1920s, and a sulfurous odor hung in the air. To this day, when the smell drifts 50 miles north, people in Austin call it the Luling effect. Yenny's father worked in oil, too, but it wasn't long before he was deported. Yenny's mother, Leticia, stayed and got a job in the kitchen of a local Mexican restaurant, where the pay was modest, but no one was asking about papers. Every morning, Yenny and her little brother Michael rode to a red brick schoolhouse in a car overstuffed with other kids. At the wheel was a neighbor who, for a dollar a day, took care of children whose parents' work days started well before class did. Letitia divorced, remarried, and took a second job at a poultry plant. She had two more sons, and she relied on Yenny to help raise them. Pedro, born when Yenny was 10, received a diagnosis of autism. He was so sensitive to sound that raindrop, raindrops on the roof could make him spiral, and on the rare occasion when he spoke, Yenny understood that he'd given each word serious thought. Francisco, who arrived when she was 13, was vulnerable to, bullied in elementary school. He retreated to studying online. By the time Yenny went to high school, she'd become the nerve center of her extended family operation. She was the one who fretted over a mortgage payment, followed up on the applications for disability that she filed for her cousin, who'd had a stroke at 16, warned family members when politicians were stoking rage against the undocumented, and made the delicate decision about whether to call the police when Pedro, alarmed by something he couldn't articulate, ran away. Only at school did the pressure ease up. Whereas other teenage girls in Luling dreamed of being crowned watermelon thump queen at the annual Farmers Festival, Yenny's hope was to become a scientist. 
One day, she imagined she'd have a college degree, chemistry or biology she hadn't decided, and buy a home in Wimberley, a pretty hill country town 40 miles west of Luling. She could almost see the ranch house nestled in the woods with extra bedrooms for Letitia and the boys. She could still almost see the place years later, her mother said, after scholarships had been turned down for a lack of a social security number and she was a certified nursing aide cutting toenails at Hillcrest Manor, a nursing home near one where her brother Michael worked as a janitor. Life is too short for tears and hate, she always said, and comfort could be found in blasting Queen Bay in the car on the way home from work, in laughter with friends at an over-the-top burlesque cabaret, and in her boyfriend, an Army Reserve specialist named Andrew Glick. He wasn't as liberal as she was, but they shared a skewed sense of humor and a longing for experiences more vibrant than those afforded by rural Texas. Andrew loved anime, wanted to go to Tokyo, and didn't balk when Yenny made it clear that, should the two of them stay together and leave Luling, her younger siblings would be coming along. She called them her niños, the children she'd had without getting pregnant. The wedding was in November 2021, and on the preceding evenings, Andrew received a crash course in ranchera. The mariachis were driving six hours for a single night. There could be no disappointments on the dance floor. After the ceremony, in a barn flanked by oak trees, Yenny, 26, swayed in a tulle ball gown, a silver, silver tiara, and the longest veil she could find. The following month, Yenny announced with joy that she was pregnant. The only downside, she told her mom, was that she and Andrew, who had moved in with the family, would be deferring their plan to leave Luling. Where else but in this stinker of a town would there be so many aunts and cousins excited to meet a newborn and to help? Luling Seoul General Hospital, Ascension Seton, Edgar B. Davis, is named for the God-fearing shoemaker who discovered that the town was sitting on oil. The hospital's helipad has a canary yellow signal that reads low-flying aircraft. In Caldwell County, where Luling is situated, more than a quarter of the people under 65 are uninsured, according to a recent census estimate. For some of them, delaying medical care until it becomes urgent is a way of life. Critically ill people, including women who are pregnant, often arrive at the hospital only to be rushed to better equipped facilities somewhere else. The hospital's labor and delivery unit closed years ago, and there is no OBGYN on site. The women in Yenny's family, like most women in Luling, were used to traveling to Kyle, 30 miles northwest, or to Austin for routine care. But sometimes a pregnancy-related crisis is too urgent to allow for travel time, and the Luling emergency room with four beds and one doctor is the only place to go. By 2022, two hospital employees told me the number of women giving birth in Luling ER was surging. They recalled seeing only five or six births in the previous decade. Now it felt like uncontrolled chaos, one of them said. Babies were being delivered in the waiting room or crowning on a stretcher in the hallway, the four beds being occupied. The two employees were accustomed to seeing early miscarriages or the swift delivery of someone's fourth child. But lately, women were coming in with more varied and complex conditions, and at times the ER felt like a neonatal intensive care unit, but one lacking the equipment to properly handle sick babies. 
the hospital's single baby warming crib was discovered during a birth to be missing a wheel. A nurse had to prop it up with her feet to prevent the newborn from falling out while the doctor received obstetrics counsel over the phone from a specialist in Austin. Anything that fails in society, anything that's broken, ends up being the emergency room's problem, one of the employees told me. Both of them suspected that the surge was being driven by diminished access to abortions following the enactment in 2021 of a state law known as SB-8, which banned the procedure after the sixth week of pregnancy in nearly all cases. A Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health study recently showed that in a nine-month period following the passage of SB-8, nearly 10,000 additional babies were born in Texas. What conservative lawmakers hailed as the saving of infant lives medical professionals I interviewed in rural Texas saw as a beleaguering challenge. According to state data, even before SB 8, half the counties in Texas were unequipped to treat pregnant women, lacking a single specialist in women's health, such as an OBGYN or a certified midwife. Multiple doctors told me that the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022 exacerbated the crisis as practitioners retired early or moved to states where they'd have more liberty to make medical judgments. So who exactly was supposed to handle the extra deliveries in women's health deserts such as Caldwell County? What would become of women in remote locales who experienced a hemorrhage or a ruptured fallopian tube? Although it was illegal for the ER to turn away patients who needed urgent care, hospital workers in Luling couldn't hide their reservations. This is not the place you want to be, one of them told pregnant patients. It could end up tragic. There wouldn't be an anesthesiologist on hand to numb the pain with an epidural, much less an expert in maternal fetal medicine. Not every patient was in a position to travel elsewhere, however. If a pregnant woman visited the Luling ER three times in a row, staff came to assume that she'd end up delivering there whether they were prepared or not. Yenny was among the uninsured, and when her teeth hurt or drugstore creams weren't curing a rash, she turned to the Luling ER. Over time, the staff came to know her and her ailments. In her mid-twenties, she learned that she had hypertension or high blood pressure and diabetes. Both conditions ran in her family. Yenny began storing her insulin next to her mother's in the fridge. After COVID-19 peaked in Luling, Yenny fell ill and she was hospitalized with pulmonary edema, a condition in which the lungs fill with fluid that strains the heart and can be fatal. Another long-term complication was her weight, which rarely dipped below 260 pounds. For all these reasons, when Yenny became pregnant, she was a high-risk patient. Seven weeks into her pregnancy, in late January 2022, Yenny messaged Andrew. Slight breathing problems. A few days later, she woke up bleeding. Her first instinct was to call her mother. Does it hurt? Letitia asked. It didn't. But Yenny was too scared to trust her mother's theory that miscarriages were accompanied by pain. She raced to the ER where her case was termed a threatened miscarriage. An ultrasound showed normal fetal growth. Her blood pressure, however, had spiked to a worrisome 185 over 98. Although some women with the same conditions as Yenny, hypertension, diabetes, a history of pulmonary edema, severe obesity, end up safely delivering healthy babies, 
other becomes so unwell that a difficult question arises. Is this a pregnancy that the patient can safely continue? Some studies show that cardiovascular diseases account for more than a third of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. When a pregnant patient comes to you with a history of pulmonary edema, the question is, what is the cause and can it be managed or reversed? Yuri Elikiam, the director of the Maternal Cardiology Program at the University of Southern California, told me, Pregnancy increases blood volume, and with limited cardiac reserves, the pressure from the heart may be reflected into the lungs, causing pulmonary edema and heart failure. His rule of thumb is that if a patient is fairly sick early on, one needs to assume that as pregnancy progresses, things only will get worse. In those cases, he said, termination lowers the risk of death. According to Yenny's medical records, doctors didn't raise the possibility of a therapeutic termination with her. Ascension Seton, a network of Catholic hospitals whose mission is rooted in the loving ministry of Jesus, is averse to abortions. But as some medical professionals familiar with Yenny's care told me, the hospitals can make an exception when a woman's life is at risk. The field of obstetrics is replete with gray areas, and in the past, a physician with a borderline case could direct the patient to another facility with fewer restrictions on abortion. But that option effectively disappeared in the months before Yenny got pregnant. When SB 8 banned abortions past the six-week limit, it included an exception in cases of medical emergency. At the same time, the law made it tricky for healthcare workers to raise the emergency flag by enabling citizens to initiate lawsuits against people who aid or abet banned abortions, incentivizing them with the possibility of a $10,000 reward. A person involved with Yenny's medical case told me, One of the things that SB8 does is undermine a sense of common mission and trust even within a caregiving team, you know, who's going to go behind your back and sue you because you watched you, they watched you do your care. After the bleeding episode, Yenny left the ER with a referral to Jessica Mueller, an OBGYN who was part of the Ascension Seton Network in Kyle. After making the appointment, Yenny had to find someone to cover her shift at a home care job that she'd recently started, attending to a man with a quadriplegia whose ability to eat, drink, and bathe depended on her. Once she made it to Kyle, Mueller informed her that her hypertension remained severe and she needed to be admitted to the hospital. This was news that Yenny could not afford to hear. As it was, she could barely keep up with her medical expenses. This visit alone was costing her $250 out of pocket. Undocumented pregnant women can be eligible for government-funded health coverage, and Yenny had applied for it, but hadn't received a response. I don't know what to do, she'd texted Andrew shortly before the appointment with Mueller. I just dropped 500 plus my car payment to get it out of the way, so I'm left with $200 that's not even enough to cover costs, and I'm just done. I don't know what to do. They won't help me unless I get insurance, but I can't get insurance. Mueller could not convince Yenny, now 10 weeks pregnant, to be hospitalized, but she did her best to warn her patient about the dangers of skipping doses of blood pressure medication, which Yenny sometimes did because the drugs could make her nauseated or sleepy, inhibiting her ability to do her job. 
If she did not get her blood pressure and glucose under control, Mueller said, she would be at risk of having a heart attack, a stroke, or a miscarriage. Medical records did not suggest any discussion of the fact that an abortion could have alleviated the additional strain that the pregnancy placed on her heart. Mueller did not respond to requests for comment. Deciding whether to end a much-wanted pregnancy because of serious health risks is an excruciating process for many women, and it, also diffi- and it is also difficult terrain for doctors. Informed consent is a fundamental principle of medicine. A patient can basically do what she chooses with her body and can take or leave medical advice, but doctors are ethically bound to give the patient enough information to grasp the possible costs and benefits of her choices. In states with abortion bans, which emphasize the rights of the unborn and tend to have the poorest maternal health outcomes, a doctor's advice to a pregnant woman can be especially fraught. Two weeks before Yenny saw Mueller, Lori Harper, the director of maternal fetal medicine at the University of Texas at Austin, who practices at Ascension Seton, had told colleagues at a conference how SB8 was affecting her work. Some women just cannot take the stress of pregnancy, so they may basically die or develop a life-threatening condition. In those cases, I have to recommend an abortion in order to prevent a maternal death. And that is getting much harder. She added physicians are having to choose between their own personal well-being and, at times, a patient's well-being. Another doctor in the Ascension Seaton system told me, One of the great challenges and rewarding features of obstetrics is that you have two patients. They sometimes have competing interests, and one is dependent on the other. Your job is to get both through the pregnancy safely, but that's not always possible. And it's very frustrating to have your hands tied because the patient who you need to save is not the one that's protected by law. Yenny's first visit to Mueller was followed by five more. By the third visit, she was taking her medications as prescribed, but she had missed a virtual appointment with a maternal-fetal specialist because the house where her client lived had terrible cell phone service. Mueller's notes cataloged what doctors call social determinants of health, structural factors that shape a person's welfare beyond her individual choices or treatments. Unable to get Lantus RX because was $400, Mueller wrote, of Yenny's prescription for long-acting insulin. BP elevated today, was 20 minutes late for appointment, so was stressed about this. On Yenny's sixth visit, her blood pressure was normal. She had asked Mueller to write down her baby's sex on a piece of paper. The unopened note was passed to a florist who prepared a box of balloons. In mid-April, a small crowd assembled in Letitia's backyard chanting, Cinco, Cuatro, Tres, Dos, Uno, at which point pink balloons rose into the sky. It was a girl for whom Yenny and Andrew had already chosen a name, Celine. Three weeks later, in the early hours of May 9th, Andrew Willis, a doctor at the Luling ER, was halfway through his shift when Yenny arrived with her husband. She had woken in the middle of the night, struggling to breathe. For about a month, she had been coughing persistently and gasping for air, especially when lying down. But now she could feel her heart racing as her oxygen levels dropped. She couldn't walk without becoming short of breath. Her blood pressure was dangerously high, 205 over 129. 
She was 22 weeks and 6 days pregnant. Willis's instinct was to transfer Yenny to a facility in Kyle or Austin, which was credentialed to treat high-risk pregnancy cases. But her vitals had to be stabilized first. With a nasal cannula, he brought up her oxygen levels. Her blood pressure, though, wasn't responding to treatment. It dropped to 175 over 108, went back up to 219 over 126, then soared to 233 over 133. An X-ray revealed that Yenny had once again developed pulmonary edema. The longer she stayed in Luling, the greater the danger. The hospital called a helicopter, but bad weather set in. Yenny would have to go by ambulance to a bigger hospital. An OBGYN in Kyle advised Willis not to transfer Yenny there. Instead, she would be sent to the Ascension Seton Medical Center, Austin, 20 miles farther away. In the paperwork, hypertension and pulmonary edema were listed as reasons for the transfer, along with suspected preeclampsia, a complication of pregnancy that is characterized by high blood pressure and can damage organs. Doctors often recommend that preeclamptic women deliver early. Shortly after 8 in the morning, an ambulance was whisking Yenny to the Austin Hospital, El Grande, as Yenny described it to her mother. The breathing difficulty was making her panic as it had in the past. This was the third time she'd been given a diagnosis of pulmonary edema. She messaged Andrew, I'm alone and scared. Where is my mom? Letitia was also terrified. That morning she had rushed to the Luling ER, and as she'd watched the ambulance doors close, it had occurred to her that her daughter might die inside the vehicle. Yenny had never looked so sick. On arrival in Austin, records show Yenny was at high risk for clinical decompensation death. Yenny's fetus at nearly 23 weeks was on the cusp of viability. According to a 2022 study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, a baby delivered at 23 weeks has a less than 50% chance of survival, and a significant number of the babies who do survive have severe disabilities. When considering an early delivery, a doctor must carefully weigh the benefit to the mother against the cost to the fetus. A second, more controversial approach in cases like Yenny's is a late-term abortion. In 2021, according to data obtained by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, less than 1% of abortions occurred at or after 21 weeks. When an abortion is performed at this stage of pregnancy, it is often to protect the life of the mother. Yenny was so unwell on admission, stupid sick in the words of one person involved in her care, that she was immediately transferred to the intensive care unit and placed on assisted breathing. Though she was unable to speak, she could still text. I want to live, she told Andrew, distressed. A little later, she tried to collect herself. When Letitia asked how she was feeling, she replied, fine, adding a thumbs up emoji. Letitia recognized her daughter's habit of downplaying fears. How many dozens of messages had she received over the years that said, I love you, Mom, and everything will be okay? So she persisted. Gorda, tell me the truth. Yenny let this message go unanswered. In the following days, under the care of Celeste Shepard, a specialist in maternal fetal medicine and others, Yenny's pulmonary edema improved with blood pressure medications. Her supplemental oxygen was dialed back and tests showed that she was most likely did not have preeclampsia. 
It was a moment of seeming stability in which medical professionals might have started a conversation with Yenny about the progressive burden that the pregnancy placed on her already vulnerable heart and lungs and about the risk that continuing it might pose to her life. This didn't happen. Four days after admission, Yenny was discharged with an adjusted dose of hypertension medication and a potent diuretic. Shepard declined to answer questions about Yenny's care. When Yenny returned to Luling, exhausted, her family wondered if she would have been kept in the hospital longer than she had she been insured. Some OBGYNs I spoke with also raised this question. Letitia urged her to quit her job and stay home until Celine was born. But Yenny needed the money. How else would Celine's needs be covered? I'm fine, she insisted. Letitia, though, could hear how Yenny dragged her feet when she came home from work. Was this normal for the fifth month of pregnancy? Although there were fewer than ten steps between where Yenny parked her car and the stoop, the journey left her spent. She started departing family gatherings before everyone else, including the elders. Where are you going, Miha? Even employees at the local supermarket who had come to know Yenny over the years as a lively customer had started worrying about her pallor. In late May, Yenny texted Tuesday Co., the nurse who cared for her quadriplegic client at night, saying that the shortness of breath had returned. She went to see Mueller, the OBGYN in Kyle, and was asked to return the following day with a urine sample, which would be tested for excess protein, a sign of preeclampsia. When Yenny got back from the appointment, she felt defeated. She told Co. that she knew something was wrong, but the doctors didn't seem to be getting to the bottom of it. It was always the same thing that they couldn't find anything, Co. told me. And every time she had to go, it was so expensive because she had no insurance, so she stopped going. Yenny's breathing problems continued, but records indicate that she did not visit the OBGYN again. Just after 5 a.m. on July 10th, Yenny's chronic symptoms intensified. A city ambulance arrived and paramedics found her sitting on the side of her bed feeling weak. She told them she was anxious and they found that her blood pressure was perilously high, 213 over 146. Andrew said that she was taking only half the blood pressure medication she'd been prescribed. Yenny explained that her dose was always changing. Yenny's oxygen levels were falling and the paramedics concluded that she needed to go to the hospital. She took 20 minutes to get dressed, and when she finally left the house, she stumbled before recovering her footing and making it to a stretcher inside the ambulance. She needed to catch her breath, she said, then her breathing turned into a cough. The paramedics put her on oxygen and started her on an IV. You'll be going to Kyle via helicopter, they told her. She was too far along in her pregnancy and too hypertensive to admit to the Luling Hospital. Acute pulmonary edema often causes patients to panic, and before the driver could start the engine, Yenny unfastened her safety belts. She couldn't breathe, she said. The paramedics struggled to calm her down. According to three medical professionals familiar with Yenny's case, it is appropriate in such situations to provide a hypertension medicine, like labetitol, immediately. Instead, the paramedics interpreted some of her symptoms as signs of anxiety. Andrew Willis, the Luling ER doctor, recommended sedation when they called him. They gave Yenny the first of two milligrams of Ativan, medical records show, and then 100 micrograms of fentanyl. Labetitol was among the last medications administered. 
By this time, neighbors had joined a distraught Andrew outside the ambulance and were wondering why paramedics called to rush Jenny to a hospital five minutes away had been parked for almost two hours. The director of Luling Emergency Medical Services, Richard Slaughter, did not respond to questions about the medications Jenny received or about the delayed departure. Willis did not respond to requests for comments. Minutes after 7 a.m., when the paramedics finally pulled up to the ER, the helicopter meant to transport Yenny was still en route, but Willis and a small team were waiting at one of the hospital doors. They had IV bags of magnesium sulfate, which helps prevent seizures in preeclamptic women, and medications that would lower Yenny's blood pressure. When the ambulance stopped, though, the paramedics didn't get out. The hospital workers looked at one another. Finally, one of them flung open the vehicle's doors. Yenny had no pulse. The paramedics had been giving her CPR. Willis took over, and with each compression, a doctor trained in emergency medicine was making one of the most difficult calculations in the field of obstetrics, when to turn from working on a mother to working on her baby. The consensus among specialists is that initiating a C-section within roughly four minutes of the mother's death improves the infant's chances of survival. Delivering the baby also improves chances of resuscitating the mother. Willis worked on Yenny past the four-minute mark, then made an incision in her abdomen. When Celine, now 31 weeks, came to rest on the old baby warmer, she too was dead. After Andrew Glick, who had been in the waiting room, heard that Yenny and the baby were gone, he fled the ER. Not long afterward, he left Luling for good in his wife's old car, where he'd kept one of her last cans of soda in the cup holder. Although he declined through family members to speak to me, he decided to share via email a single document, Yenny's autopsy report. Cause of death, hypertensive cardiovascular disease associated with morbid obesity. Other contributing factors, pregnancy. The autopsy capped more than 3,000 pages of medical records chronicling the short life of Yennefer Alvarez Estrada Glick. None of the records from when Yenny was alive acknowledged that given her multiple underlying conditions, an abortion would have increased her chances of survival. Only the autopsy put it plainly. Pregnancy creates stress on the heart and can exacerbate underlying heart disease and cause hypertensive crises, the medical examiner wrote in naming pregnancy as a factor in Yenny's death. Yenny's passing came as a shock to her family. We were scheduled to do her baby shower this that weekend, Andrew's sister, Lisa Bozeman, told me, but we weren't having a baby shower. We were having a funeral. Ever since Yenny's death, some of the medical professionals involved in and briefed about her care have been haunted by the question of whether sins of omission were committed. They have asked themselves if responsibility for her death resided in part with the new laws that suppress free discussion, both among doctors and with patients, about therapeutic abortion. Had fear of legal repercussions trumped compassionate care? Yenny's death occurred two weeks after the overturning of Roe, which triggered abortion restrictions in states across the country. In Idaho, Texas, and Missouri, for instance, performing an abortion in almost all circumstances became classified as a felony for which a doctor could face years in prison and the loss of a medical license. Even before the Supreme Court ruling, the U.S., the rare wealthy nation without universal health care, 
was one of the few countries where maternal deaths had increased significantly in the past two decades. A study by the University of Colorado Boulder predicted a surge in maternal deaths after Roe fell, disproportionately among women of color. Analysts at the Lancet and Harvard Medical School voiced similar worries. The task of determining whether that prediction has come to pass in Texas belongs to the state's Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Review Committee. Texas's maternal death rate has more than doubled since 1999, driven by the increase in maternal care deserts and by a lack of prenatal care, of health insurance, and of access to contraception. The review committee has, for the past decade, attempted to conduct close analyses of these deaths, drawing on medical records, police reports, and other documentation. Its reports serve both as roadmaps for averting future deaths. The vast majority of the examined deaths were likely preventable, the committee's latest findings show, and as social indictments, underscoring how much a woman's race, economic status, and location factor into her likelihood of dying while pregnant. Members of the committee told me that the review process is cumbersome and that they won't start assessing 2022 cases until later this year at the earliest. Given that procedural lag time, the New Yorker asked four outside experts to review Yenny's medical file, which her mother obtained. All four said that Yenny's death was preventable, that she'd been discharged prematurely from the Austin Hospital, and that a therapeutic abortion, if offered and accepted, would probably have saved her life. Joanne Stone, the chair of the OBGYN department at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and the former president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine said flatly, if she weren't pregnant, she likely wouldn't be dead. When Yenny was well enough to be moved out of the ICU in Austin, Stone went on, the discussion would be, do you want to continue this pregnancy now, knowing that because you already had the severe range blood pressure and pulmonary edema, your likelihood of getting really sick is super high? In such cases, she explained, you have a consultation. You have the neonatologist come talk to her. You have the maternal fetal medicine specialist come talk to her. And then sometimes the patient needs a day or two to come to a decision. But in the legal landscape of Texas, you can't even start that discussion. Thomas Trail, the director of the E. Cowles Andrus Cardiac Clinic at Johns Hopkins and an expert in pregnancies of women with cardiac conditions, agreed with Stone about the gravity of Yenny's risk. He told me that had Yenny had access to proper care for her serious underlying conditions, she would have been advised not to get pregnant in the first place, and that when she saw an OBGYN 10 weeks after she conceived, an abortion should have been discussed. He contended that, with the law apparently stifling such a conversation, ER doctors and paramedics were placed in an impossible situation that ended in a very preventable maternal death. Charles E. Brown, a maternal fetal expert who used to work at Ascension Seton in Austin, noted that Yenny's problems were heightened by the inconsistency with which she took her hypertension medications. However, he concurred with the other experts that the threat to her life was sufficiently high that at 10 weeks along, she should have been asked, do you want to continue this pregnancy? Brown also said that in Austin, Yenny should have been carefully monitored until a viable delivery was likely, instead of being discharged into a care desert. He considers her death a consequence of both SB8 and a crisis long predating it, 
Texas's inadequate funding of the medical needs of the poor. To Tony Ogburn, an OBGYN who has spent his career serving women of color in low-income communities, most recently as chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, Yenny was a ticking time bomb, one that exploded. He acknowledged that some people would say she was noncompliant, that this is her fault. But he noted if that's the attitude Americans have, the United States will never fix its maternal mortality problem. Among the aspects of Yenny's case that particularly troubled him were the breaches of informed consent and shared decision-making. If Yenny had been made fully aware that she might die at 27 and had learned how an abortion might increase her chances of survival and then had chosen to continue the pregnancy, Ogburn said that would be okay. Instead, she and her family had seemingly been denied crucial medical information that they had a right to know. A spokesperson for Ascension Seton declined to answer specific questions about Yenny's care and any role that Texas's abortion restrictions might have played in it. The spokesperson cited legal reasons and the right to privacy, although Yenny's mother had signed a waiver of privacy rights in order to allow the hospital to respond to my questions. We are committed to providing high-quality care to all individuals, the spokesperson said, with special attention to the poor and vulnerable. On a recent morning when I joined Letitia and her sister Elizabeth at a diner in downtown Luling, the women gestured uneasily toward the booth behind us, four paramedics in uniform eating breakfast tacos, their radios hanging off their belts. In a community of only 5,000 people, it is difficult to ask questions about the choices made by institutions on which your own life might one day depend. So Yenny's family and friends talked quietly among themselves, wondering what Yenny would have chosen had she known how imperiled she was. One of her closest friends, Dolores Favela, said she and Andrew were so young, and if given a choice, they probably would have thought to themselves, we'll have so much time together, we can have a child later on. Letitia wasn't as sure, recalling something Yenny said in passing after her improvement in the Austin ICU, that if a doctor had to choose between saving her or saving Celine, her daughter should come first. Letitia had responded half in jest, and who exactly is going to take care of Celine? Well, you, Mommy, Yenny said. Me, Letitia teased. If you leave, you better take Celine with you. Laughing, the women laid the subject to rest, never to discuss it again. Now that both Yenny and Celine were gone, Letitia tried to find comfort in the idea that it had all been God's will. But what if it hadn't been? What if the catastrophe could have been prevented? She thought that Yenny would have pursued answers had such a thing happened to someone she loved. Leaving the diner, Letitia and Elizabeth headed to the cemetery, as they often did, to shoo the lizards from the grave tidy the marigolds and test the solar pollard lights that they draped over the tombstone to ensure that Yenny and Celine would not be left in the dark. Our next article is back from Talk of the Town and it's titled The Boards, Noise on Wheels. Times Square on its best days is a hive of controlled chaos where tourists, cabbies, actors, Elmos, and the naked cowboy manage a tenuous coexistence. A new element can upset the ecosystem. Witness the proliferation of music blaring pedicabs, which lately have turned from rare treat to swarm, some say scourge. 
I've seen pedicabs in the city for over 20 years, Tom Harris, the president of the Times Square Alliance, said the other day. He was near the TKTS booth amid the holiday throngs. Recently, the behavior has pushed it to a point where it's not an amenity, it's a detraction from the quality of life. Harris, trench coat, Brooklyn accent, has overseen a growing turf war between the bicycle-drawn carriages and the Broadway community. They congregate around theaters at the end of theater times. They almost block up the entire street. Their sound is blasting outside even before the show lets out, he said, and there's predatory pricing. I've heard stories of people paying hundreds of dollars to go a few blocks. Only a small number of pedicabs are licensed, he explained. Two days earlier, in a sting operation, the NYPD had seized 77 illegal pedicabs in Midtown. Curbside skirmishes are common. Last spring, the proprietors of Glass House Tavern on 47th Street complained on Instagram about the horde of pedicabs causing dangerous situations for pedestrians and being verbally abusive to our staff as the drivers waited for the musical six to let out next door. Glass House posted a sign warning tourists about the pedicab's $9 per minute rate. In apparent retaliation, the restaurant was besieged with negative reviews online. Noise is a big issue. The police raid came two weeks after the city councilman Eric Botker sent a letter to three city agencies reporting an uptick in complaints, in part because of amplified music that is frequently audible during performances, he wrote. Broadway actors have messaged him on Instagram about it. He urged stronger enforcement of existing regulations and possibly new legislation. If you're following the rules, I really don't have a problem, he said, but they shouldn't be audible during a performance. That's just not cool. The pedicab playlist can be jarring. The Hayes Theater, which recently housed the period farce The Cottage, set in the Cotswolds in 1923, is across the street from A Beautiful Noise, the Neil Diamond musical, where pedicabs strategically blast Sweet Caroline. It's frustrating because sometimes that noise will take the audience out of the moment, Jim Joseph, who operates The Hayes, said. Outside Gutenberg, the musical... Pedicabs played spooky music on Halloween so loudly that Andrew Rannells and Josh Gad improvised jokes about it on stage. Last summer, while the comedian Alex Edelman was performing Just For Us, his solo show about Jewish identity, he could hear pedicabs' music from behind the stage wall. He recalled, Sometimes I'd be in a quiet moment in the show and hear... He broke into Alicia Keys, in New York, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. They were an omnipresent threat. The problem is acute at How to Dance in Ohio, a new musical at the Belasco with autistic cast members. We have worked very hard to make the show accessible for audiences who have sensory issues, so having them come out to this blaring wall of pedicabs is really detrimental, Fiona Rudin, a producer, said. One night, she recalled an emotional scene in which an autistic pet store employee is berated by a supervisor, was disrupted by a pedicab booming single ladies. Harris helped arrange barricades outside the Belasco, pushing the pedicabs across the street. We tried to get them to turn down the music, and they just wouldn't comply, he said. A tinsel-bedecked pedicab stopped at a light on 7th Avenue, playing a dance remix of Jingle Bells at a reasonable volume. 
Harris was pleased to see a badge around the driver's neck. You're one of the few that are licensed, he said. It's not easy, the driver, Mustafa, said he'd come to New York from Turkey 30 years ago and drove a taxi before the pandemic when he switched to a pedicab. This is an immigrant job, he said. But unlicensed drivers have hurt his business. He'd almost come to blows with one. I have two kids. First time I asked New York State for snap help. Another pedicab sped by, blaring Will Smith's men in black. Here's the difference. He's got no license, Harris observed. This is like a tale of two cities. Mustafa said that he was getting out of the pedicab game. He'd already sold two of his three bikes. I don't like this job, he said. It's too much hustle. Very bad environment. And that article was written by Michael Schulman. And our final article for this podcast is from the New Yorker dated January 1st and 8th, 2024. Shouts and Murmurs, Nature, Wow, by Colin Nissan. Spend five minutes in nature and you'll see what everyone's talking about with the mountains and zoos and watermelons. It's breathtaking. And what about salmon, just swimming around completely unfazed by how wet they're getting? If you want to see for yourself, there are some great documentaries about how wet they get. There's such a breadth of animals besides just wet ones and dry ones. There are shy animals like the hermit crab and outgoing animals like the gibbon shaking you down for your kind bar in the rainforest. Nature has trees all over the place. Without trees, we wouldn't have many of the leaves and branches that we enjoy today. If trees didn't produce oxygen, we'd be dead. If they didn't produce maple syrup, we'd be dead and slumped over a stack of inedible pancakes. Horses are by far the most majestic animal that you can lose your life savings on. There are no sure bets in nature, not even sleeper's revenge. Seahorses aren't horses, but be careful, you can lose money on them, too. People are curious about nature. That's why there are so many Google searches about it, such as which snakes are venomous and quick remedies for throat closing and can I write out my will on a leaf and how to prepare a body for an open casket after lots of snake bites and explaining to your children that a snake killed their dad and places to move where there are less snakes. There's something for everyone in nature, even deserts, for people who love the beach but hate enjoying themselves, and for outlaws going after the son of a bitch who killed their daddy in cold blood for two measly gold pieces and an old pocket watch that wasn't even ticking. Researchers have spent years trying to unlock the mysteries of nature, like why the plural of deer is also deer, and why sunsets are free but paying a taxidermist for one ferret costs me almost a grand. 1200 with the sailor outfit. If you're rich, you can see nature's higher-end stuff, which is only kept in special preserves, or even travel to one of the natural wonders of the world, which are teeming with stunning souvenir shops. Nature is famous for its calm and tranquility. A good example is the beautiful silence right after a school of piranhas goes to town on a carp. If you live in the suburbs, you likely own some nature that's right up against your neighbor's nature, which can create a tricky situation with that rhododendron that's in no man's land, the one that Mike insists on pruning like it's his, but it's not his. You know it, and rhododendron Mike knows it. Nature can also be found above your head in the form of birds, but don't let that stop you from enjoying them, either by waiting until they come down or by making them come down, if you know what I mean. There are so many different sides to nature. 
One minute you're hunting grouse. The next minute your wealthy father-in-law turns his Winchester on you and asks if you overheard anything he said in the parlor last night. The next minute you're playing him the audio you recorded of him discussing his little business deal. The next minute he's asking how much it'll cost him for you to destroy that and never speak of it again. The next minute you tell him you'll have to think about a number. The next minute you're back to hunting grouse, but boy is it tense. Safaris are a good way to see a decent part of Tampa. FYI, Bush Gardens no longer allows outside food. I had to wolf down three PB&Js at the gate. The big takeaway here is that we need to do everything we can to live in harmony with nature, or we can kiss those watermelons goodbye. That means listening when nature is trying to tell us something and also cutting ourselves some slack if we can't decipher nature's cryptic messages amid all the intense weather and natural disasters. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Dale with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.